You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. How about you? Uh, fantastic. We're both just great. Now, I saw earlier on the uh, Twitter that sounded like you ran out of coffee. You, you only had decaf left, which I want, made me wonder... What the fuck is Chad Dundas doing with decaf even in the house? Why just have that around where just anybody could lay their hands on it? Uh, it was actually a a, uh, a mistaken purchase. My oh, wife okay. was, was trying to buy uh, the Black Coffee Roasters, which is a local coffee product here in Missoula. She was trying to buy their half calf, which is, you know, it's a mix of half decaf, half caffeine for uh, mostly for drinking in the afternoon times. And... Uh, they're the same color. The decaf and half calf packaging is the same color. So she got two two packages of it. One was the actual thing she wanted, and then one was the decaf. So lo and behold, we're we're down to to scraping the bottom of the barrel of the supplies as it is. Ben, I go this morning to open up what I thought was going to be the other container of half calf, which is already not going to be my favorite thing in the morning. And then I discover it's decaf, and so yeah, all was lost. You know what? I got in my fridge right now. Our friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Down, sent me some beers in the mail not too long ago, as he is known to do because he is just a stand-up guy. And uh, most of them were great beers. I enjoyed immensely. There's like some sort of coffee stout thing that's way back there in the back corner of the fridge. And there's going to be some dark day in the future, I'm sure, where I will look back there and go, you know what? Fine. I'm desperate enough. I need to have some form of beer. And that's the only thing in the fridge. But man, I do not, I don't relish thinking about when that day comes. You know what? I'm going to take it back. I'm going to take back what I said earlier about being fantastic. I'm not fantastic. Okay. I'm dragging ass because cool. I didn't have my morning coffee and because Danny Boy Downs hasn't sent me any beers in the mail. Well, I'm glad we could talk ourselves down from, from pretending like we're feeling good. <laughs> ben, you know what all the little co-maniacs are doing out there right now as we speak? Uh, skipping ahead on the podcast app on their phone right now. They're sitting there two weeks out stuck wondering what they're going to get their dad, their mom, their uncle, their cousin for Christmas, whoever it is on their list. Who's hard to buy for. Well, I got the answer. I got the answer. Ben, tell us what it is. Did the people out there know? that I've got not one, but two books available right now, wherever fine books are sold. That's right. You can get my first novel, Champion of the World, right now in paperback. If your dad or your mom likes history or wrestling or doing crimes, get them Champion of the World. Speaking of doing crimes, if you've got a mystery lover on your list, you can grab a copy of The Blaze. That's my other book. It's a mystery. It's a thriller. All the little co-maniacs who've read it so far think it's pretty good. Heck, I don't care. Grab a copy for yourself. Just remember, if you do read it or you have read it and you enjoyed it, please also give me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book, so do me a favor. Gift someone Champion of the World or The Blaze for Christmas this year. Thanks. This is your prime, your prime time, isn't it? People really comes time to give in gifts, like books as gifts. You write the kind of books that are exactly for the target audience of people where they're just like, I got to get this, this bastard something. Dads, dads are my demo pretty much. Uh, and you know, it's been, I don't know if you know this, Ben, but there's been a pandemic on this year. I'd heard something about that. So, uh, the publishing industry not doing great. So if the people want to give us a little lift, they could go out this Christmas season, gift someone champion of the world or the blaze. Not a bad idea. As always, exciting times over at the co-main event podcast, Patreon page. Ben, is this what's going to happen this week on the movie club? We're going to watch David Fincher's Mank. That's right. Okay. You've seen it. You, you, you liked it. You, you're, I did. you're vouching for it. 
we're, we're pretty much still fresh on the heels of the David Fincher famous film director retrospective we did uh, a month or so ago. So we're going to go ahead and watch Mank this week because it just dropped on Netflix over the weekend. And then are we going to do this as well? After Mank, we're going to roll out a month of martial arts movies. That's right. In January, we were going to do a month of martial arts movies. So the kids at home, all the little patrons, the beloved patrons of the co-main event podcast over there at patreon.com slash co-main event, they'll be able to go to the page and vote for what, like the four martial arts movies that we're going to watch? That's correct. Sounds like fun to me. For all the kids out there who aren't already a member of the team, you can do so right now over at patreon.com slash co-main event. That support is what keeps this podcast ad-free and the discourse, frankly, unfettered. We got music this week from our guy, Kyle Kelly Yoner, old school CME fan who also happens to be a tremendous drummer, has a solo project out. It's an EP of instrumental tracks, uh, mostly drums and synth. It's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out the rest of the EP at his website, kyleky.com, or follow him on Instagram at kylekydrums. We got three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, three bouts were removed from last Saturday's UFC event on fight day due to positive COVID-19 tests. But unfortunately for Jack Hermanson, his last minute fight against Marvin Vittori was not one of them. And in round number two, Dana White says Yoel Romero's UFC release will be one of around 60, quote, tough decisions he has to make during the Christmas season this year as apparently the UFC is now balling on a budget. And in round number three, speaking of budgets, this weekend's UFC 256 actually looks kind of fun. You know, if any of these fights end up happening, all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Droopy McCool. Okay, that's definitely a real person. Sounds like a good guy. Uh, He writes, so Floyd Mayweather has agreed to a boxing exhibition fight against either Jake or Logan Paul. I'd check which Paul he's fighting, but it really doesn't matter. Given the recent pay-per-view success of Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr., not exactly the same, but falls into a similar category. Do you think we'll see more of these legend versus celebrity fights in the future? And do you think this is a viable path for an MMA legend like Anderson Silva? Please discourse. So this was the hot breaking news just yesterday, right? Didn't this drop yesterday? Yeah. First uh, of all, good to hear from Droopy McCool, a uh, member of the Max Rebo band that plays uh, in Jabba's Palace on Tatooine, Star okay. Wars films. All so, right. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, and if you think that you can't go online and find out exactly how tall Droopy McCool is, think again. Most information that you'd want to know about Star Wars is out there somewhere. That's what I've learned. So, Ben, we got this fight now. Floyd Mayweather announcing in February he's going to uh, do one of these exhibition boxing matches, I believe, against Logan Paul, correct? Could be either Paul. There's no way to know. There's no way to know which Paul brother we're talking about. There's no way to know if they're even for sure different people. You and I were somewhat uh, surprised in the wake of Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. to find out that, that Jake Paul, maybe the lesser of the two Paul brothers on the Internet, is apparently maybe the more accomplished boxer and and yet you're going to have Logan Paul who is the more famous of the two I think is going to box Floyd Mayweather and maybe that tells you that in and of itself Ben tells you the first thing you need to know about what's happening here are you saying that uh, Floyd Mayweather is ducking Jake Paul <laughs> yeah that must be it something close to that I'm just saying he's if you got two choices and you got the slightly better boxer or the more famous brother and what you're thinking about is your pocketbook. You probably want to fight the more famous brother. I suppose you do. Um, first of all, I am really looking forward to absolutely, definitely not watching this. There's not a single fucking thing you get me to do that you could do to get me to watch this. And yet, if other people want to watch it and they feel like that'll be a good time for them, go for it, man. Have yourselves a time. Because, I mean... It's not like we like we were already veering toward this territory, right? Like Floyd Mayweather had that fight with tension, and then like you know now 
we're we're all just kind of doing stuff to just have fun out there and whatever we can to get some eyeballs. And so fine. These, these guys are going to fuck around in basically a pro wrestling match with boxing gloves on. And uh, if if that does it for some people, I hope they have a good time. I said halfway in jest last week that if Conor McGregor wanted to make himself a bankroll, he would jump right on the offer by Jake Paul to box him in one of these exhibition fights. Now it turns out maybe Conor McGregor slept on this too long. Floyd Mayweather is going to cut the line to fight his version of a, of a Paul brother. But I said yesterday on Twitter when I found out about this thing, go ahead and slot Jake Paul versus Conor McGregor as the co-main on this thing, and you you break every pay-per-view record under the sun. This thing would be the uh, the king shit of fuck mountain when it comes to pay-per-view buy, buy rates. Man, you better they're going to put that on the poster. This thing is going to be the king shit of fuck mountain, Chad Dundas. Hey, if they want to use that as an event as an event name, they can they can cut a check to the LLC. <laughs> anytime they want and they can they can use that uh what about the the second question here from droopy mccool is this a viable path for an mma legend like anderson silva my uh depends on what what part of the matchup he thinks anderson silva makes i don't think anderson silva could play the floyd mayweather part here in the logan paul matchup just because man i don't think anderson silva is a big enough pay-per-view draw to command the attention but if anderson silva wanted to roll up and be the Roy Jones Jr. to Mike Tyson or the Logan Paul to Floyd Mayweather or even the Anderson Silva to Roy Jones Jr., I guess my answer is maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, if you do something like an Anderson Silva versus Roy Jones Jr., then at least you have two professional fighters involved, right? Like that's that's already more legitimate. And honestly, I would watch that. I would watch Anderson Silva in a boxing match with Roy Jones Jr. I do think, though, there's got to be a limit on the public's appetite for stuff like this. And I understand everybody is very buoyed by the success of the Tyson Jones Jr. pay-per-view, like sold like a million and a half buys or something around that from what I heard. And I, I can see why everybody's looking at that going, all right, how do we capture that magic again? Maybe even do better than that. But there's got to be – like this is not – a bottomless well of general interest is it like there's got to be a point where people are like you know what i had fun once i even had fun twice but i'm not going to keep going to the same stupid party for 50 bucks over and over again i mean you and i would like to think that right but (laughs) the, the fact is that boxing has been doing weird exhibition freak show bouts for like 100 years right like uh uh muhammad ali and uh uh the professional wrestler whose name I'm blanking on at the moment, Josh. Antonio Inoki. Yeah. Antonio Inoki. Those guys had a, an exhibition pro wrestling boxing match. Uh, I believe Jack Dempsey w- was doing these things all the way back in the, in the twenties and thirties. There was a rumor going around for a long time that he would box uh, Strangler Lewis, the, the wrestling champion. You know, we talked about on the show originally Jack Johnson and uh, Stanley Ketchell who again was two professional boxers, so not exactly the same thing, but a small man and a big man having an exhibition fight. Seems like this kind of thing has been popular for a long time. And I would I would do you one better, Ben, and that would be to ask about this grim arithmetic that we in the combat sports realm have had to do almost our entire lives, where at some point we come to the realization that the fights the most people want to see are these kinds of fights. Why do you think that is? And of course, I'm not talking about people inside the bubble. I'm not necessarily talking about boxing fans. I'm not necessarily talking about MMA fans. But the casual person seems to have an appetite for these attractions that supersedes even their interest in the actual sport of boxing or mixed martial arts. Why on earth do you think that is? Well, well, I mean, first of all, you, you make a good point about how there's a long history of this kind of stuff in combat sports. And when I said that there's got to be a limit to the public appetite, I don't mean that we'll reach a point where we go, all right, we're never interested in this kind of shit again. But I do think this kind of stuff is a novelty. And if you try to do the novelty you know, once every couple months, people are going to reach a point where they're like, you know what? I just saw this. I don't, I don't need to see it again. But I think the the core answer to your question there is that 
fight sports are always and have always been a thing where there's going to be a hardcore fan base that is interested in it all the time and interested in even the minor players in it, interested in seeing almost any two motherfuckers put on some gloves, get in there and, and trade head trauma. You know, the kind of people where two guys fighting in the middle of the afternoon from Russia, they're going to watch that. And the bigger fan base is going to be the people who are only attracted to fights with recognizable names and figures that they know. And that's what really drives combat sports still. I think it's like, it's a, a personality based business. And when you have the big personalities and people that uh, are famous for one reason or another, whether it's fighting or something else, and they get in there, people go, okay, I got to see this. And that's what really, when you're talking about pay-per-view fights, that's what you have. That's the standard you have to meet to have a successful pay-per-view. You have to create something where people go, I have to see this. I have to experience it live. I can't just hear about it later. I can't watch a video later. I, you know, no one's ever managed to have a pay-per-view where only the people who paid the money watch the thing. But the thing you get for paying the money is you get to live the experience as it's happening along with everybody else. And so in order to get those people to put down that money, you have to create the thing for, for one reason or another, even if it's, this is going to be stupid, but I got to see it. Or if it's going to be, this is going to be great and I got to see it, or this is going to be like the most important fight. You got to find that, that magic. And so I guess it makes sense. It's like YouTubers are the things that people are excited about now. And you're bringing in a whole new demographic that previously wasn't paying attention, wasn't buying any boxing pay-per-views. I mean, I think Mike Tyson was kind of right about that in a way that boxing has struggled at times. And then they realize, okay, wait a minute. You get these guys who are willing to put on some boxing gloves and get in there. And you can look like a credible boxer, I think, a little easier then you can look like a credible mixed martial artist just because there's so many more skill sets you have to have in MMA and somebody can just take you down and expose you if you don't have some of them. Whereas in boxing, Floyd Mayweather can go out there and carry you a little bit. You know, like I think that that's, that's why it seems like a viable option for some of these people. And then I think that there are a lot of people who are out there going like, all right, I watch these guys on YouTube. They're genuine celebrities to me. God damn it. If he's in a fight for 50 bucks and it's a big deal and he's fighting a guy who's a great boxer, then I got to see it. And I think everybody who kind of knows or has some realistic expectation of what they're going to get for their money here, but that doesn't mean it doesn't seem worth the money to them. Do you think Conor McGregor has had the sobering moment where he's had to look at this uh, fight poster and be like, wait a second, was I 2017's Logan Paul? <laughs> I mean, I don't think Conor McGregor is doing any sort of self-reflection even near that deep. Fair but enough, fair point. You are not incorrect to draw a through line from that to this. They are their points along the same spectrum. You know what I mean? Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from the Corgi King, who writes, My nickname in high school was also Mowgli, and like Gabriel Benitez, I am also a proud Mexican man. However, I have never need someone so hard that they deflated like a balloon and crumbled into the fetal position. Seriously, how awesome was that? Are there any other fighters from the undercard that stood out to you guys from Saturday night? Uh, this was pretty impressive. Uh, Gabriel Benitez against Justin James, the first round TKO after the a knee to the body that looked looked like it could have just broken all Justin James's whole shit. Yeah. Man. And then uh, obviously he follows up with strikes until the referee pulls him off there. I know that it is sort of a corporate talking point about Gabriel Benitez at this point, but those kicks are hard, man. Like this guy kicks really, really hard. And then he follows that up with the knee, gets the first round stoppage, obviously, of Justin James, snaps the two-fight losing streak that he had been on, uh, lost to Omar Morales and Sodiq Youssef uh, in earlier UFC fights. But uh, I don't know, man. Gabriel Benitez seems to... He's a guy that I want to see fight again, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there were a couple of good uh, 
uh, fights on this prelims here for this. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of prelims. We we're down to eight fights by the time the thing finally went off. Uh, but you got Ilya Topuria. Uh, I'm sure I've nailed it. Uh, yeah, and uh, like you're real confident about that. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Levitt's slam. The, this is kind of a scary slam KO of Matt Wyman there. I mean, there were some, some notable performances come out of there that that slam KO, by the way, the it reiterated to me a discussion that we've had before on this podcast about how you know we talk a lot about the big knockouts and you know knees to the head kicks to the head stuff like that whenever i see a big slam ko like this i'm reminded like oh yeah if somebody's going to get seriously badly hurt in this sport it's probably going to be one of those like just sadly true i was actually going to use as my just saying stuff this week the fact that uh I don't necessarily turn tune into the UFC to watch a guy like Matt Wyman, who I consider at least age wise kind of a peer. You know, he's going to go out there with the salt and pepper uh, all over the hair with the shaved head. I don't tune into the show to uh, to watch dudes like that get slam KO'd. Frankly, <laughs> like that's uh, that, that hits a little bit too close to home for me. Uh, but I would also say if it is going to happen, I would like to see it come at the hands of uh, apparently a delightful weirdo like Jordan Levette. Uh, yeah. Because there's, that's a dude who's going to just act like a, uh, a like charming, but maybe he could also be a serial killer the, during his pre-fight interviews. The dirty dancing celebration with the coaches is like, I'm, I'm there for that. Yeah. And the you know splits, what I mean? Guy goes and does the splits in the cage. See, but that's one where you're like, man, if you do accidentally kill somebody in the cage with a slam KO, you don't want to be like, you don't want to have them coming over to you while you're in the splits all the way down in the splits being like, hey, we think this is bad. And you having to get up out of the splits. I mean, to his credit, he did do the splits and then walked over to the cage and immediately looked like maybe he was going to cry kind of (laughs) Yes, because of how bad he'd hurt Matt Wyman. Like he looked legitimately concerned about how things were going for Matt Wyman in the immediate the immediate aftermath of this KO. Uh, I mean, we got to mention Jamal Hill, right? Like co-main event guy goes out there and TKOs Ovin St. Prue. I don't maybe maybe we're not convinced or uh, considering that a a preliminary, but like uh, for Jamal Hill, that's that's uh, that's definitely his biggest win thus far in the UFC. He's won them all except for the one that he had overturned uh, for a positive test for marijuana. But that that one was a TKO victory for Hill as well. So I think all of the right thinking of people of the world are just going to count that among his wins. Three and zero in the UFC plus one Dana White contender series of victory last summer, uh, two thousand nineteen, but. Uh, I don't know, despite the fact that he has two thumbs up hands tattooed on his chest, Jamal Hill seems like a uh, like kind of a bad dude, like kind of a guy who could maybe make some noise in a John Jones-less 205-pound division. Yeah, and he really just looks super comfortable and relaxed in there, especially even in like a, a fight against a, a pre-known opponent in the division like this. Just really looks like he walked in there knowing that he was going to win and was just kind of waiting to find out exactly when. Next question this week comes to us from Nate from New Bedford, who writes, since the recent news pertaining to Mr. Rodriguez's whereabouts, of course, he means Yair Rodriguez or lack thereof, have made me wonder about something. Is it considered a whereabouts violation if USADA physically goes to where you are supposed to be and can't find you there? Or is it easier to get a violation than that? For example, if Mr. Rodriguez has on his app that he's home, but he posts on Instagram that he's out to eat, is that considered a violation? This is probably a dumb question, and I'm probably overthinking this, but I can't think of a better duo to ask. Thanks, Nate. Nate can't think of a better duo to ask a dumb question to uh, besides us. I don't think it's a dumb question, though. Like, as far as I know, like maybe I've just forgotten one, Ben, but this seems like the first whereabouts violation suspension I can remember. Yeah, well, I don't know. I feel like I've heard of at least one. I don't know if I've heard of a suspension, but I've heard of at least. Or isn't didn't one of the Diaz brothers, uh, you know, way kind of back run in the that day, somehow? the way back in the day, there were some instances of like Vanderlei Silva ducking out of a drug test, and uh, remember that the the NA the 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 NSAC couldn't find Alistair Overeem at first when they were trying to give him a drug test. Uh, of course, rumors about John Jones hiding underneath the cage over in the uh, 
in Albuquerque. I believe he has actually confirmed those on some manner of podcast later on. Uh, but this is the first one where I can really recall USADA handing out a whereabouts violation. I'm sure that they have happened before and I'm just sort of blanking on it, but this is the highest profile one I can remember. And to me, this is another instance where you're like, these guys are independent contractors, huh? And yeah. Yeah, there's an app on their phone where they have to give their whereabouts 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to the drug testers. That seems like a bigger commitment to me than just a freelancer working on a contract. Yeah. Um, here's, I, I looked this up after seeing this question. I, I tried to look up some information about it on the USADA website. Here's uh, one thing about where, whereabouts submissions. Like Basically, they ask them to do this quarterly and then to update it like where you're saying like here's your daily overnight location stuff like that and then it says 60 minute window any athlete who is in the usada rtp like registered uh, testing pool must submit or must provide a specific 60 minute time slot every day between 5 a.m to 11 p.m that anchors the athlete to a specific location the athlete chooses the 60 minute time slot to fit their schedule and must be available and accessible for testing at the specific location during the entire 60 minute time slot Please note that USADA can choose to and does test athletes outside of their 60-minute window. And that is, like, I can see how that would get onerous for you to be expected to do that every single day. And I think the way the whereabouts suspension things works is, you know, you can miss one or two. But if you miss, I think it was like three within, I don't know if it's 12 months or six months or whatever. But, like, you miss too many within a, a certain span of time and that's when it triggers the suspension and yet it is still a lot to ask of some of these people to because we know some pro fighters we've dealt with them we've we've dealt with trying to schedule things with pro fighters uh their their schedules are not always exactly like other people's schedules and yeah they you know a lot of them i remember when we were doing this uh our surveys for the athletic and asking people what's the best part about being a pro fighter. And so many of them said freedom. Yeah. Like I don't have to show up at a job at a certain time every day. I kind of get to make my own schedule. I get to decide when I want to go on vacation and, and I like the freedom of being able to decide my own life day to day like that. And then you got this USADA thing that kind of impinges on that a little bit. And it's just the kind of stuff where, again, if the fighters had some sort of fighters association to have a seat at the table during these conversations, you could at least offer up some some thoughts on the way they do the whereabouts program or the way they do the, the, t- the drug testing program in general. Instead of just having it forced on you like you wake up one day and it's like, hey, guess what? We're doing USADA now and all you independent contractors have to tell them where you'll be every single day of your lives. Yeah, I remember interviewing Joanna Jacek once when she was about to go to Poland. She was going to go back home to Poland and she was telling me about like trying to schedule all of the uh like trying to make her schedule for USADA and it really made me realize that one of these thing one of the things that this USADA testing uh practices does is that it makes the the MMA athlete have to know where they're going to be. They have to, have to know their future schedule, which I think we can both attest is not necessarily seem to be a strength among a lot of a lot of the professional MMA fighters we've dealt with. And Joanna Jacek, who's uh, a big-time proponent of the USADA program and wanted to be available for her drug tests, even she was like, man, I filled out my whole schedule and like I, uh, I submitted it via the app to USADA and it was fine. And then I remembered, oh, wait a second, I'm actually doing all of these like uh, either media appearances or M- MMA seminars while I'm in Poland. So I'm actually going to be in all these different towns. So she had to go back and like re-edit her whole USADA schedule and be like, sorry, I messed up. I'm going to be in a bunch of different places. So like it's it's uh, to hear her tell it, at least it, d- it did sound somewhat arduous to make sure that that you've got everything squared away for USADA. Yeah. All right, let's do one more and then we'll uh, move on. This one from Matt Liming who writes, so Tim Elliott versus Kayla Harrison. Hashtag would watch. Love you guys. Stay safe out there. Uh, so Tim Elliott and Kayla Harrison went back and forth a little bit on Twitter. I, I did not see this over the weekend. It was hard to tell uh, if it was in jest or not. It was basically, uh, let me see if I can call up the actual tweets here just so we have it. Um, 
somebody posted on Twitter about Kayla Harrison, basically it's a reply to someone else. I don't have the original, but they say, or she could have made 145 consistently and gotten in Bellator versus Julia Budd or Chris Cyborg or the the UFC versus Megan Anderson and her buddy Amanda Nunes instead of just signing with the remade slash upstart PFL shrug emoji. And then Tim Elliott with the blue check mark and all replied to that tweet to say she don't want those problems easier to fight out of out of shape soccer bombs. Oh. And then uh, Kayla Harrison eventually replied to say, what's up, little guy? Oh. I pay you one fourth of my purse since I know you don't make that much show up 1218. And then Tim Elliott replied, I've fought bigger dudes than you. Uh, so they were at each other's throats a little bit. I was I was I couldn't really tell how serious it was or if it was uh you know they're just clowning but uh back and forth a little bit obviously i don't think it will lead to anything i mean anybody who's going to criticize what kayla harrison is doing over there at pfl didn't she go and win the damn million dollar tournament thing million dollar season like she must have right that's you do that and i don't see how anybody could be like you know, she made a poor career choice <laughs> because there are not a lot of those paydays out there anywhere in MMA. If you have an opportunity to go get one of them, you do it. Yeah. Anybody would. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, it was a twisting road that eventually led Jack Hermanson to Marvin Vittori in the main event of Saturday's UFC on ESPN 19 event. First, he was going to fight Darren Till. Then we thought he might fight Kevin Holland. Ultimately, of course, due to injuries and whatnot, positive tests for COVID-19, the UFC eventually settles on Marvin Vittori. Vittori goes out there. Gets in a firefight pretty much with Jack Hermanson, a very high-paced middleweight attraction here in the main event. These two guys go all five rounds. Vittori emerges with the the clear-cut unanimous decision victory, advances his own streak to four straight wins now in the UFC. And Jack Hermanson, a guy that uh, many of us had ticketed for top, top contender status, not too long ago has now fallen to one and two in his last three with these losses to Jared Cannonier and Marvin Vittori. What was your takeaway here? You know, I was impressed with Marvin Vittori. We talked before about how this was a tough fight for Jack Hermanson, especially to take with the opponent switched up on such short notice and not having the same name as Darren Till, his original opponent. And that it was a a very tough fight with a lot to lose and not quite as much to gain. And then Marvin Vittori went out there and kind of showed exactly why that was the case. I think uh, Jack Hermanson said afterwards that he had a a broken orbital after the fight. It was just kind of a dogfight all the way through. And Vittori is fierce, man. I I think, you know, his fight, his close fight with Israel Adesanya back when Adesanya was still pretty new to the UFC – it sort of looks different in retrospect now, doesn't it? Based on how both guys have fared since then. Uh, Vittori is, is no joke in this division. Yeah, he's got that loss to Israel Adesanya. He lost to Antonio Carlos Jr. really early in his UFC career, just his second fight in the octagon. There is the draw he had with Omari Akhmedov. And other than that, he's won them all. So uh, Marvin Vittori, as I said, this point on a four-fight win streak, although uh, – during that stretch, Jack Hermanson is obviously the highest profile and toughest opponent that he's had to fight. I would put Marvin Vittori on this list of these young guys. He's 27 years old and seems like he is really, really good and talented. And yet for whatever reason, at least up until Saturday night has kind of flown underneath the radar. I think 
most of us who pay attention to the sport, watch the UFC closely, know who Marvin Vittori is. I wouldn't expect any manner of casual fan to have ever heard of of him before. But even among, I think, hardcore fans, like if you were going to be, if you were going to ask who's a big threat at a 185 and who's really an up and coming contender, I don't know how many people would have spit out the name Marvin Vittori straight away until perhaps now that he has beaten Jack Hermanson. Yeah. Do you think he looks too much like a creator character on a video game? Is that what's there, holding there him back? Is, there is something nondescript about the guy. And when, it, and when, uh, the the pool is as crowded as it is in the UFC and the, when there are as many events and so many people vying for screen time and all, all of our attention, you know, Marvin Vittori just seems like one of these guys who who doesn't have any one thing that stands out about him until you see him showing up, uh, you know, bullying Jack Hermanson around the cage and getting this victory. Yeah. Uh, and once I find myself thinking about the possibility of Marvin Vittori versus Apollo Costa kind of fight, uh, as a possibility for the future, man, hashtag would watch. Yeah, yeah. I'd watch the hell out of that. Yeah. I'd, I, they might as well have a pose down before the fight too, just because a couple of dudes are going to look good getting off the bus. Going to go out there, scrap a little bit. I predict that fight would reach high levels of both swinging and banging. <laughs> it might, it might indeed. There would be some uh, bungalows thrown. Yeah. What about, Singing and dancing, Jack Hermanson. Now one and three, as I said, or one and two in his last three. Is this uh, is he in trouble a little bit here? Is this a trouble spot for for Jack Hermanson? He needs to come back with some wins, I would think, uh, in short order. Yeah, it. I mean, it's a tough deal for him, to tell you the truth, because the the Darren Till fight seemed like okay, a little bit of a tough matchup, but high profile matchup. He's coming off that submission win over Kelvin Gastelum that after getting set back against Jared Cannonier, you think, okay, maybe if he beats somebody like Darren Till, he's back in there. Then when it got switched to Kevin Holland, you're like, well, Kevin Holland's hot right now. That still means something. But then you get switched again to Marvin Vittori, where there doesn't seem like there's quite as much of a boost if you do win. And then he goes out there and he loses it, loses a, you know, a good fight and not like a blowout or anything by any means, but definitely got the worst of that one. And afterwards you start looking, you go, man, now it seems like an even longer climb to get back up there where it wasn't so long ago where we were talking about, Hey, don't look now, but Jack Hermanson might be in the title hunt. Now he's lost two of his last three. Yeah. And again, like this was a good fight. This wasn't one where you looked at it and you thought Jack Hermanson looked shot or like he doesn't have the, the, what it takes to be a contender in that division, or you just don't want to watch him fight. Like this thing was exciting enough that I think even though Jack Hermanson lost, a lot of people will probably want to see what's next for him. But at the same time, if he is going to live up to the somewhat lofty expectations that we had uh, maybe built up in our own minds about him, he does need to swing, string some wins together, I would say here. Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of highlights, doesn't it, what a tough situation so many fighters are in right now. Because you you take that fight against Darren Till thing and like, all right, here we go. Like, I have the chance to, to really get noticed here. He drops out. You kind of got to take the replacement opponent that they can get you. And then that gets ruined for you, too. And so then they find this other guy. And you're not in a position, really, where you can say, no, I don't like this idea. Like, you know how the UFC is going to be about that. They will not be super forgiving about it. They already feel like they're probably frantic running around trying to keep some of these cards together. They don't need you being an extra level of difficulty on that. So then you got to take this fight and then it ends up being a tough fight that you lose. And you, you might look back on it and be like, this, this was not how I saw this whole situation going when I first agreed to fight Darren Till way back then. Right. <laughs> and yet what else could you do there? Like you got to just kind of take your chances and hope for the best. Well, and speaking of which, and I know that uh, the coronavirus situation in America is, is not trending in a positive direction. And at the same time, it seems like things with the UFC, at least when they are in Vegas doing the Apex stuff, uh, is only getting more chaotic from my view. It seems like it's only getting more uh, uh, like uh, that there are more uh, canceled fights than ever on fight day. It's, it's, It's only getting more and more disturbing kind of to see. And I mean that like. That there that it is literally disturbing the order of <laughs> of the event. Like there are only more disturbances. It seems like it doesn't seem like things are are trending in a positive direction here at all. No, I mean 
there is nothing about anything to do with the COVID situation anywhere in North America right now that is trending in a positive direction, except for the fact that it seems like maybe we have a vaccine that people like us will be able to get in like six months. All right, let's go ahead and do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, you remember when you were uh, you were saying earlier that you feel like there is a limit to how many of these exhibition boxing matches we can have that people will eventually get their fill and and the the uh the interest will die off just saw this float across my uh news feed earlier today snoop dog oh god you're gonna take my are you fucking kidding me is this yours as well we got the same are you fucking kidding me (laughs) snoop dog and triller to start celebrity boxing league called the fight club the headline over there at uh at bloody elbow now Here's the thing I was going to highlight from this bloody elbow story on it, which I think refers to a sports net story. It says um, the fight club will also see Triller continue to feature musical acts between bouts. Snoop Dogg's league will be a separate entity from Tyson's legends only league, which is the banner Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. fought under Triller pans to continue Tyson's league, focusing on largely veteran or retired stars from boxing. We are trying really hard to figure out just how many different weirdo exhibition boxing leagues we can have apparently yeah how i would think one but apparently we're going to try to run at least two so <laughs> so we'll see how that goes you fucking kidding me fucking kidding me all right i guess if that was both of our are you fucking kidding me we'll go ahead and get started with round number two Chad, 44-year-old Yoel Romero, former middleweight title contender, mainstay at or near the top of the UFC's middleweight division for a few years now, released from his UFC contract last week with still, I believe, three fights left on it. Dana White showed up at the post-fight press conference on Saturday night and said that this is not anything to do with necessarily Yoel specifically, but it's more of a broader trend. This quote from Dana White, it's not just UL. We're going to go through some serious cuts here at the end of the year. Probably going to have 60 cuts before the first of the year. And UL has lost four of his last five. He's 44 years old. You know, our roster is very inflated right now. So we're going to have some big cuts coming before the end of the year. You're going to see a lot of names going here in the next several weeks. Now, imagine yourself, Chad, as sort of a UFC fighter on the bubble. Either somebody who's coming off a couple losses or maybe somebody who is on up there in years and maybe commanding a higher salary along like the lines of UL Romero. It's 2020. It's already been kind of a shit year just all the way around. And you look up from your frosted flakes and hear Dana White saying, we're going to make some serious cuts to this overinflated roster before the first of the year. Did you, did your, plans for how ambitious you wanted to get with christmas presents just change yeah maybe trying to see if you can send back that 200 hundred dollar american girl doll yeah huh? see if you can get they'll give you your money back on that there is a lot to unpack here is there not not only from the loss of yoel romero a guy who as you said has been a somewhat beloved mainstay of the ufc middleweight division for seven years like we all we at this point we've all grown up with yoel romero uh, and now he's gone. He's going to go fight in Bellator or Ryzen or one FC or something like that. That's a PFL. Maybe that's, that's, that's interesting. That's new. That's not something we can, uh, we, we could have probably prepared for before this announcement came and above and beyond that, the indication that the UFC is going to be making a bunch of cuts. And then you get Dana White's quote that you just read about how the roster is quote unquote inflated. It's just there's a <laughs> there's a lot happening there, man. Not the least of which is if you think the UFC's roster is inflated now, man, it has been inflated since about 2011 when the UFC changed its business model to to go for quantity over quality. And if you believe that at this point it has grown inflated, isn't it inflated because of Dana White? And yeah. isn't it inflated because he's going out there and signing three and four? Dana White contender series fighters every single week when that thing is in season and isn't 
sort of what he's actually saying here. We may have found a slightly more fiscally responsible or a slightly more low cost direction to at least for the time being put this fight company on where we can get these guys for less money who maybe it turns out are going to provide the same uh, return to us in terms of what they bring to the table on a, on a fight broadcast. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the things that was left out in this quote here is saying our roster is inflated without saying who inflated it. How did it get that way? Because some of it, I think you can say is due to actual real circumstances that the UFC has been facing here. And I think it'll be interesting to see exactly what form some of these cuts take, because it'll tell you a little bit about what strategy wise the UFC is thinking headed into 2021. Cause you would kind of think looking at where the UFC is now and the situations it's been dealing with lately, that is now really a time where you suddenly want to have fewer fighters at your disposal. Cause you need them. Like you just came off a eight fight card that, was getting chopped away at right until the last minute. And now is the, is, is now the time when you want to have fewer people you can call to get on a fight card. Cause it, it seems like when you got one every single weekend, what you need are bodies. You need some people that you can put out there. And so if you're cutting people, I think UL is a really interesting example to look at because you know, you can understand what Dana White's saying that he's 44. Maybe the, the yesterdays of UL Romero are better than the tomorrow's. And he, because he's been such a, a beloved figure in the middleweight division for so long, he makes pretty good money, for at least, you know, relatively among UFC fighters. Like his last disclosed payday for a non-title fight, I think he made like 300, a disclosed payday of like 350 grand for the title fight against Israel Adesanya. His last disclosed payday for a non-title fight was the one before that against Paulo Costa, where he made 150 grand in show money. And... From the USC's perspective right now, when you're dealing at with a situation where you have to fulfill this broadcast deal with ESPN, you're dealing with a lot of last minute COVID cancellations and the need to find late replacements and, and trying to struggle to keep fight cards together. And a guy like Yul Romero is not necessarily somebody who helps you with that. He's not the guy you call on two weeks notice to just come and help shore up this undercard. Yes, he's making a bunch of money to do it, and he's just not going to take those kind of fights. He doesn't need to take those kind of fights. He's the kind of guy where you got to actually give him a real plan like six or eight weeks out and give him a fight that he thinks makes sense for him. And what you really want is some of those guys off the contender series making 10 and 10 and just happy for the opportunity. And if you call them up two weeks before and be like, hey, we had some people drop out of this fight card. Do you want in? They go, absolutely. Yes, I do. And you can get 15 of those guys. For the price of one UL Romero. The difference is, how does that change the actual product that you are offering to your fans? Yeah. And hey, man, look, no argument. 2020 has sucked for us all. Yeah. For you, for me, and all the way up the MMA ladder, it has sucked for the UFC. There's no there's no arguing against that. Of course, every everyone has had a bad time. The UFC has probably seen a significant dent you know, 10 to 15%, whatever it was from no live gate. And then on top of that, the extra spending that it has to do uh, to try to put on fights during this pandemic. But at the same time, you remember that a couple weeks ago, I can't remember if it was here on the proper or if it was over on one of the Patreon properties that we do. You and I were talking about what lesson the UFC would learn from the pandemic. And obviously, just these 60 cuts is kind of a situational thing. I don't necessarily know that we can look into the future and say, uh, this is this is a harbinger of what the UFC's product is going to be moving forward. But I have to say, a tiny little alarm bell goes off in my head when I find out that the UFC is, is potentially cutting 60 Yoel Romero-type people from its roster right before the end of the year. And that makes me wonder, did the UFC learn the wrong lesson from the pandemic, from pandemic MMA, did it learn the lesson that I was kind of hoping it would not learn? And that is people will watch this no matter who we put out there. And if we can do it on an extremely tight budget, it only increases the profits for us. I mean, that is definitely one of the lessons they learned, but I don't think that that was just a pandemic lesson. Right. Like it's I think a lesson that's been coming since the Fox deal for sure. Right. It's been, but we've seen the, the, the volume has gotten turned way up on it during the pandemic where 
we literally are kind of watching two random people fight in an empty arena at this point. Yeah. Well, and what's more is that that doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime super soon. You know, like, like we were just talking about kind of at the end of the last round, you look at where we are right now as a country and we're, we're, it seems like maybe starting to see a post Thanksgiving spike and then we're headed toward Christmas. And as a country, it seems like we've kind of decided, well, fuck it. Like (laughs) we, we tried a little bit and then we gave up. And now we're just letting this thing ravage our nation in various po- in various ways, some worse than other, depending on exactly where you are. But the UFC is going to continue to have these damn events. And it seems crazy to me how the UFC has done both the full bubble approach when it's in Fight Island and then it's done the not so full bubble approach in Las Vegas. So it knows what works. If you do the full bubble thing, like in Abu Dhabi, the fight island stuff, you can keep the virus out of there altogether, but it's expensive and it's a whole lot of trouble to do. And so they only do it when somebody else is paying. When they're doing it in Las Vegas, they're doing the budget version of it and people are showing up with COVID right up until fight time. And they're letting people kind of wander into into the general population and then wander back in. And that's obviously like it's clear that if you keep doing that, you're going to keep having this problem probably for a few more months at least. And the UFC seems to have made the calculation like, all right, we're just going to do that. Like, we're just going to roll with that and try to make the best of it. And if that's what we're going to look like for the next few months, then doesn't it seem like we're going to just see more and more of these cancellations? You're going to need more and more last minute changes, people on call to help you out, fill in. Like, that is not a thing that's just suddenly going to stop once we change that page on the calendar to January 1st, 2021. Right. And again, not to continually sound the alarm about this or to continue to beat a dead horse, but in terms of these cuts, the UFC talking about how its roster is inflated, what it really means is that the roster is inflated if it is intent on continuing to keep 85% of the profits. And it is. So there you go. We got to lay off 60 people, but you know, we're not really hurting for money. That's just, uh, we just got to make our 85%, man. Yeah, well, and the parent company that looks on you as one of these still trucking industries amid the pandemic probably wants you to slim it down a little bit and just find more ways to keep more of that money. If you were Scotty Cokes, would you shell out for Yoel Romero? You know, I think I would. Um, I guess some of it's going to depend exactly what you'd be asked to pay. I mean, I know Scotty Cokes has told us. That his this the direction of Bellator for the future, he feels, is not continuing to just scoop up UFC leftovers. But UL Romero is one I feel like you could make some fun fights for and in different divisions. I mean, I guess some of that would depend on his willingness, like what UL Romero sees as the future for his career at this point, because you got some some stuff you need to make happen at light heavyweight. Maybe you get UL Romero in some of those fights. You know, I I could get interested in seeing some of that. Plus, it's one thing for us to say, hey, he's 44 years old. Maybe he's winding down. He's also UL fucking Romero, man. He was out there doing backflips and jeans uh, not that long ago, earlier earlier this year. So it's possible that his 44 is not going to be like other people's 44. And maybe he's still got more time in him than you think. I agree. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Round number three. Ben, UFC 256 this Saturday, still down there at the Apex in Las Vegas. We're not going anywhere these days. We're staying home all the time. This event probably not going to be one that sets any pay-per-view records. Probably not going to huge score a huge number in terms of a buy rate. But I got to say, you just look at the card here. Davis and Figueredo and Brandon Moreno, obviously, in the main event for the men's flyweight title. Tony Ferguson versus Charles Oliveira. Hanato Moicano versus Rafael Fiziev. Uh, Kevin Holland versus Jacare Souza, and then Junior Dos Santos versus Cyril Gone. That's your uh, that's your main card, and then you look down at the uh, 
at the prelims and you got Cub Swanson on this thing. You got Mackenzie Dern, obviously uh, Amanda or Angela Hill just had to drop out of the Tisha Torres fight, but you still got Billy Q on here. Uh, Ling Jingliang, remember that guy? Uh, this is, you know, oh, Chase Hooper down there. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, 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 uh, if you got a Saturday night free, man, you could do worse. Like, this seems like kind of a fun fight card to me, even though it's not going to be like a, a blockbuster. I hesitate to even agree with you because it's Monday. Hey, man, we got to live in the moment. We got to talk about how this thing looks right now on the page. I'm not even refreshing the internet right now because I might do it and six of these fights might be gone. I know. I mean, that's the thing. It's so hard to get your hopes up right now because you're right. Like I look at this fight card and I go, yeah, this as the last UFC pay-per-view of the year. Yeah, man, this this looks like a a good use of a Saturday night because honestly, you got Figgy Smalls on there out there vying to make his case as fighter of the year, which I think for me, at least he will have sewn up if he goes out there and he beats Brandon Moreto, defends his title again, like a second time in less than a month after kind of starting the year in relative obscurity. I go, that's my fighter of the year right there. It's a it's a huge great year for him a great story in the sport he also got tony ferguson like you said you know he's at a real tipping point charles Oliveira trying to become a capital g guy in the division and just like a bunch of fun fights on there and yet monday feels so far away from saturday right now with everything that we've been dealing with and just the way we've gotten used to this working it just seems like man i i cannot allow myself emotionally to get excited until the cage door closes for each one of these fights. Yeah. I've been hurt uh, before, Chad. I've been hurt too many times in the last few weeks. I know. It's 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 hard for me to talk with you when you seem as emotionally damaged at this point as you are. But uh we talked a week or two ago about Davis and Figueredo and Brandon Moreno, both of them stepping in on extremely short notice. Both of them fought at the last numbered UFC event, UFC two fifty five back on November twenty first. And whether or not this was the proper publicity move or the proper kind of like marketing strategy amid the pandemic when there is so much uncertainty and there are so many fights and so many names and so many people we don't know, does it work to your advantage to make what I believe is the fastest championship turnaround in UFC history, correct? Yeah. Davis and Figueredo coming back to defend this title again at UFC 256 after just defending it at UFC 255. I guess you got to win in order for it to pay off. But this seems like a smart strategy to me. If if you are Davis and Figueredo and you're trying to not only keep the 125 pound division afloat, but also make a name for yourself as champion at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It is, especially because I think a lot of us, the more we see a guy like uh, Davis and Figueredo, we realize, okay, he has a fun style. Yeah. He seems like a fun dude. This is, this is, uh, a thing I can get into watching if this guy is going to go out there as champion and just really go for it, not fighting like he's really just trying to protect the belt at all costs. He's fighting like he's just trying to get you out of there. Um, that like it's it, I wrote about it after his last title defense and when they turned right around and, and booked this one about how it seems like, OK, we got a little bit of hope for men's flyweight in the UFC right now, like the. So far, the most maligned and least hyped division, like men's division that the UFC has. And then you start to see some of this, some business picking up and you go, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe we're going to see some good stuff happen here. Um, Man, I just, I want to sit all those guys down, both the fighters and their camps and be like, look, I want you guys to be extra careful while you're out there in Vegas this week. This is not the week to hit up the buffet. It's not the week, you know, to go to the M&M store. Even if you got a mask on, just stay in the damn hotel, man. Yeah. Stay in the room. Can we please walk around the, the, the hallways? Yes, absolutely. Can we please just try to keep at least this one together? I hope so. At the co-main there, you got Tony Ferguson against Charles Oliveira a fight that we've talked out, talked about a little bit. Uh, leading up, but again, an interesting thing for uh, for El Kukui here to see how he returns from that loss to Justin Gaethje back in May. 
against a somewhat lower profile, but also obviously very dangerous opponent in, in Charles Oliveira. I wonder, do you think that a guy like Tony Ferguson, who has been in the UFC for uh, nine years and just recently lost a, a an interim title fight, previous to that was undefeated since 2012, but is 36 years old, has never really been able to either be consistent enough to, to be the outright lightweight champion. Could Tony Ferguson, if he were to lose to Charles Oliveira, potentially be one of these 60 cuts? Could you see a guy like Tony Ferguson hitting the streets? Man, that is a sobering thought, isn't it? Because it's I, true I agree. that he, like, this does seem like the fight where we're going to find out, does Tony Ferguson rebound and come right back in there as just a fixture in the lightweight division going forward? Or does he lose this one too and we start to look at it as, He's down the other side of the, the mountain. He's sliding down the, the slope now after climbing up for all those years. And he's probably making pretty good money these days. Also, another guy that is not going to be your dude to fill in on six days notice when somebody gets a positive COVID test. I don't know. I, I feel like he's still too, too close to his athletic prime, too exciting and charismatic an individual, too much fun to watch to just let somebody like Bellator have him. I mean, that's, this would really test Scott Coker's new direction. You know, if you suddenly send, say that Tony Ferguson is a free agent. Yeah, no, I agree. He might still be a little bit too much in the mix there. But man, if I'm Jacare Souza, if I'm uh, Junior Dos Santos, yeah, leading up to this card and all of a sudden I see Dana White talking about 60 cuts and how they just let Yoel Romero go looking over my shoulder a little bit here man i might i might turn off the tv and go to the gym right at that moment yeah see when we were talking about that those are uh jacare and junior dos santos were two of the ones that came first to mind i was thinking maybe jds is saved mostly by the the shallow shallow pool of heavyweight yeah that could be not everybody is gonna gain so much weight in quarantine that they get a, a heavyweight body out of nowhere yes that's true that's true. All right, let's do uh, just saying stuff, then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, you know how we're always talking about the UFC, talking about how uh, how events are trending leading up to the uh, to the event. We're like, man, how can you? What, what does that even mean? Like, no one is ordering these things in advance. You don't get. It's not like there are tickets and you run out of tickets. There's no uh, positive impact of ordering the pay per view in advance. Did you see what we're doing for the Floyd Mayweather Logan Paul or Logan Paul uh, pay per view here? Uh, early pricing, the first 1 million pay-per-views sold can get in at $24.99. Oh. After 1 million, it's going to go up to $39.99. Starting on December 29th, then you got to pay 60 bucks. And if you jump on at the last minute, February 11th, and try to watch this thing, $69.99 for Floyd Mayweather versus Logan Paul. This from a tweet from our guy Bad to the Bone, Mike Bone, over there at... uh, at MMA Junkie. So uh, this one, man, I'm just saying this one, if you want to watch it, maybe there is maybe there is some reason to get in early, be, be part of that trending crowd here that buys early and and marks this on the calendar. Well, you know what? If you're trying to get me to buy a pay-per-view early, give me some incentive. That's not a bad idea. Also, I guess we're just, we got to take their word for it on when they cross a million. Like that's how we'll know that they have claimed to cross a million is when the price jumps up. Yeah, yeah. Because what if the price just stays the same all the way until you hit the December 29th deadline or whatever? Well, then you then maybe they're in some trouble. I don't know. I don't know. I, I question the, if we're really relying on the honor system here from a fight promoter. <laughs> when has it ever served us wrong in the past? Well, Chad, I'm going to read to you a headline from a press release that I saw earlier today. Are you ready? Oh, I'm I'm ready. Yes. Mixed martial arts champion Rich Franklin promises thought-provoking discussions in new podcast. Rich Franklin, Chad, is starting a podcast. The first four episodes are immediately available. His guests in those first four episodes, the Iceman Wim Hof. Uh, Wait, who? The Iceman. Yeah, it is all the breathing techniques and stuff, and uh, it's the whole thing. Diego Sanchez is really into it. 
Okay. All right. Take your word for it. Jessica Cox described here is from the press release international speaker certified pilot scuba diver black belt in taekwondo and casual piano player jessica cox eliminated i can't from her vocabulary years ago but what may impress you more is watching jessica who happened to be born without arms put in her contacts or open a can of soda also adam walker what happens when a toaster salesman watches a movie on a plane heading to a work conference obviously he decides to swim the english channel but why stop there when you can swim the Ocean 7, the seven toughest channels the ocean has to offer? And then Elizabeth Smart, who they describe as one of the most notorious child abduction cases of the 21st century. All this is going on on Rich Franklin's new podcast. The title of that podcast, Chad? Quite Franklin. Quite Franklin. With, with Do you get it? With Rich Franklin? Quite Franklin. Like, quite frankly, but it's Frank. Are you still there? Do we get cut off? We're shutting this down, right? This is the last episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. There's no reason for us to go on if Rich Franklin is going to be out here having thought-provoking conversations on his podcast. Ben, what are we doing? We're dead in the water. We are dead. We're D-E-A-D dead, Ben. I'm just saying, isn't it only a matter of time until Rich Franklin has on a podcast guest the other Rich Franklin, Randy Couture. <laughs> oh, that's going to be a big saying. day. Just saying. So he's going for kind of like a uh, Joe Rogan offshoot in a way here. I feel like he's going to be the positive vibes, Joe Rogan. Yeah, like Joe Rogan for a different crowd. Yes. That's what it seems like Franklin is trying to do here. Joe Rogan for on your way to church. <laughs> well, God bless him, man. I wish him luck with it. Me too. Quite he frankly. might find out that uh, having thought-provoking conversations on a podcast is harder than he thinks. Quite Franklin, I hope it goes well for him. Okay. See what I did? Anyway, gang, <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back Wednesday for the live chat over on the Patreon page Thursday, the Movie Club episode about Mank. Still feels odd for me to say that. Mank. That's the movie title. Then Friday, we're back again for the Power Hour. One week from today, don't miss out. The proper will break down all the stuff that happened at UFC 256 and look ahead to, uh, well, why why would we look ahead, Ben? Why would we think that Stephen Thompson and Jeff Neal and Jose Aldo and Marlon Vera are all still going to be there when we get to uh, December 19th for UFC Fight Night 183? Why would we even think that? We could be dealing with a very different situation by the time we get to Wednesday's live chat, frankly. (laughs) Indeed, sir. Good point. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, now that I'm thinking about it, we really fucked up by not working a name-based pun into the title of our podcast. Yeah, we should have gone more of like a uh, kind of like a uh, drive-time radio wacky sidekick kind of thing. Yeah. Like, you know, Chad and the Moron, something like that. I was thinking, I was thinking more like uh, Ben and the Dumpster Face. <laughs> See, yeah, either one of those. Yeah. We'd probably be raking in the dough right now. We'd be uh, talking about our audit sponsorship or something. God damn it, we fucked up. We, we fucked up from the beginning, and I don't know why we never thought to have the conversation be thought provoking. Yeah. See, that was that one. We we really should have gotten to.